in school, I don't know what it was like for you on the day that homework was being handed back or a test was being handed back, but you sit at your desk, you know, and the teacher would sometimes go one by one as you're supposed to be working on something quietly, and they'll just, you know, quietly sit it on your desk, and then you look over at it nervously. What, what's that number going to be at the top that circled in red? I know Laurel probably doesn't use red anymore. uses happier colors, like green or something. But doesn't green just become the unhappy color then? I don't know. Uh, eventually, in 20 years, we'll start using magenta, I don't know, something. But red, you'd, how much red ink am I going to see on that page? Uh, you know, on the test or on the paper marked, and well, what grade am I going to see at the top? What percentage am I going to see at the top circled on it? Uh, am I going to take pride in it? My, are my anxieties going to be um, relieved once I see it? Or am I just going to feel worse after I see how much is on that page? And I'm no longer handing in uh, papers and tests to people, but I can still feel like I'm being graded every day. Um, at the end of every day, it can, it can feel like um, today was a failure, today was a pass, or whatever it was, however I acted that day or performed that day. And, and for years I've known that I'm a perfectionist, and somebody once recently described it as me as a perfectionist often says, well, I've never done enough, and what I've done isn't good enough. And so there's no, there's no end in sight. There's no meeting 100%. And usually on my best days, it's more like, probably got like a B minus today or something like that. It's like, when I've never done enough, and what I have done isn't good enough. And each day, I want to live for Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to do his will. I want to please him. I want to do the things that he wants me to do. I want to love the people around me like he's loved me. And yet, when I turn in my report at the end of each day, it can feel like I haven't done enough. And whatever I have done really wasn't good enough. None of it measured up. And so every single day, tons of red marks all over the paper, uh, all over my report for the day. How did I do for living for Jesus? Well, here's all the red marks of all the things you missed and the grade at the top is always, you know, you, sh you should have done better. Because I knew the expectations, but didn't perform. I didn't love Katie like I should. I had moments where I was harsh or didn't listen well or thought more about myself or I was impatient with, with Hudson when he was really cranky or I hit snooze twice in the morning so I didn't read my Bible uh, before Hudson woke up or, you know, I didn't pray enough. Whatever it is, I didn't do this enough, didn't do this enough, didn't do this enough. And even if I did do it enough, it still wasn't good enough the amount I did. And so, do any of you feel this way? Do you ever, any of you feel like you're never doing enough for God or whatever you've done for God wasn't good enough? Every single day, he just kind of is like, well, there's always tomorrow. You can make it, you know, make it up tomorrow or you come to turn in your report and he already knows, you know, he's, he sees everything. And so it's just like, yeah, I'm, I just know I'm going to be disappointed again reading your report for what you did today. You could always do better. You could always do more. This week we wrap up our final words for following Jesus, this big conversation uh, that Jesus had with his disciples, which is a huge privilege that we have it recorded for us. Jesus is about to die, and then he's like, here's what I want you to know before I die. Here's what it looks like to follow me um, after I've ascended to the Father. And then he dies, he's resurrected. And then John chapter 21 is this great conversation we get uh, with between Jesus and one disciple in particular. And I'm so glad this chapters in the Bible, um, I've never really, I've heard a lot of, like seen it a lot and heard it talked about a lot, but never studied it in depth for myself and like saw it applied to my life. So I'm really, because it's good news for people who feel like they failed God. In John 13 through 17, we heard this conversation. He said, I mean, Jesus said uh, pretty simply, if you love me, you're going to obey my commands. And then he makes it pretty simple. Like, well, what are my commands? He goes to the same things back into the same things a lot of times. I want you to love other people like I've loved you. I want you to pray 
Um, and I want you to be telling others about me. Oh, and by the way, I want you to do, it should all be done with joy. You should be joyfully praying. You should be joyfully loving others. You should be joyfully telling others about Jesus, about me. You, we shouldn't be doing it like, oh, this is such a drag. I w- wish I couldn't do this. Um, so, I mean, just those three things, pretty easy, right? Praying, loving others, telling others about Jesus. But if those are the only three questions at the, on the test at the end of the day, did you pray for Jesus' will to be done today? Did you love others like Jesus loved you? Did you tell others about Jesus today? Even if those are the only three questions at the end of the day on the test, most of us at the end of the day would feel like we failed in those areas. And Jesus spent considerable time talking, warning about the hate of the world. He tells us there's going to be immense pressure on you to stop living for me. There's especially going to be immense pressure on you to stop telling people about me. You're going to be scared of what people are going to do to you, what they're going to say about you, what you're going to, they're going to think about you. And he says, you're going to have this temptation to turn away, but he wants us to remain faithful and tell him about him anyway. And if we are graded on whether we hit our beliefs about Jesus so that the world will like us, many of us would probably fail that test every day or every month or every week. And Jesus also said, well, I'm giving my life so that you can have a relationship with God. And so, well, that's pretty cool. Like, you know, I want to give you eternal life. That's why I'm dying. That's why I did this whole thing. And so, like, oh, well, maybe we just grade ourselves on how good did I do well, how good of a job did I do at having a relationship with God today? At the end of every day, we would probably feel like, well, I didn't make God that high of a priority. And so I feel like a failure because of that. I didn't spend enough time talking to him. I didn't spend enough time listening to him. Or he just kind of felt like an afterthought, and he was squeezed in. So even if we graded ourselves on our relationship with God, which is the whole reason Jesus died, we, a lot of us at the end of the day would feel like, you know what, I didn't do enough, and what I did just wasn't good enough. Even if we succeeded in doing all of those, we still would probably feel like we're falling short. I could have done more. I could have prayed more. I could have loved people better. I could have read my Bible more. I could have told more people about Jesus. So there's always more we can do. And so John 21 is good news for every one of us who feel like we fail as disciples of Jesus. Or maybe you're like, you know, I know I'm not a failure as like that defines me, but I know I fail. Like I have tough days, I have tough weeks, and sometimes it feels like my... Failure days outweigh my days where I feel like I did a good job. And Peter is one of Jesus' closest disciples who failed big time. He's like the biggest failure of all uh, in the Bible. And, and Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. There's actually a lot of people that struggle in the Bible, which is why it's good news. The whole Bible is good news. Is all these people that are supposed to be following God, and you're like, well, we've been talking, we talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and um, back in Genesis. And it's like, man, these people all struggled. But Peter is one of Jesus' closest disciples, and when he's, Jesus is being questioned by the religious leaders, his closest disciple, one of his closest ones, three times somebody asks, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And three times Jesus, er, Peter says, no, 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 I don't even know him. I don't know the guy. I'm not one of his disciples. Three times he denies Jesus. He caved to the hate of the world. Instead of showing his love for Jesus, he showed he wanted the world's love instead. Instead of standing with Jesus, he tried to hide his love for Jesus. And then John 21 shows us how Jesus comes to restore Peter after he's failed. And it shows us how Jesus restores us after we fail. And so the big idea that summarizes today's passage is this. Let me reveal it from back here. Jesus restores us. Well, in this passage at least, there's two things that he does. Through recommitment and recommissioning. So Jesus restores us through recommitment and recommissioning. In the first 14 verses, 
set the scene a bit. We're going to focus on the conversation that Jesus has with Peter. But 1 through 14 sets the scene. And in verse 1, we're told uh, that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples again by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. If you're like, Sea of Tiberias? I haven't heard that before. Same place as Sea of Galilee. Um, and that's around where Jesus grew up. That's around where his, his closest disciples grew up. And so they're back there. Um, Peter's hanging out with uh, six others. And he says, hey, I'm going fishing. And they say, well, we're going to go with you. And then we're told it's, it's in this time that they, uh, Jesus revealed himself uh, to them once again. And we have to remember that all this is happening after Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. And then they saw him alive again two times already. And they, all the disciples knew he was dead. And they're acting like he was gone. And then they discovered this empty tomb. And they're like, wow, everything's changed. He's actually alive. This proved to them that Jesus is our Lord and he's our God. He's the king we've always been waiting for. He's the king that God said he'd come. But he's also the son of God. He's the son of God in the flesh. Our very God, who we've been worshiping for centuries and centuries and centuries, became flesh and came to meet us. And since this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, it also reminds us that every one of these disciples that he comes and meets with deserted him. Well, 12 or 11 of his closest disciples are left. Judas betrayed him. The other 11 deserted him. And Jesus said, I know you're going to desert me. I'm not going to be alone. The Father's going to be with me. After he's betrayed and arrested and put on trial, none of his disciples stood with him. Most of them just ran. And Peter didn't run, but as we said, he denied him three times. And then he doesn't come to, he comes to all of them after they've deserted him. After Peter denied him, he comes to all these guys, these seven guys here. He comes to other ones on other occasions. And he doesn't say to them, well, time to start from scratch. Find some new disciples. These guys all failed. They all deserted me. The good news is that Jesus is way more committed to you than you are to him. And coming back to our, our connection and commitment has been two of the things that I think define what Jesus talks about in these chapters in John. Jesus is way more committed to you than you are to him. And even though he says, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He's calling for commitment from us. But Jesus is way more committed to us than we are to him. And verse 2 tells us that seven of these disciples, together, they go out fishing all night, and uh, they catch nothing. Night was the best time to fish. And then just as the sun was about to peak over their eyes, and someone yelled from the shore, children, do you have any fish? And then they're like, no. And then they're like, the voice says, try on the other side of the boat. And so they're like, oh, you mean, <laughs> we fished all night. Might as well try something. I don't know how changing it, whatever, 10 feet is going to help. Other side of the boat. And then they get this huge catch of fish. They can't even bring their nets in. And this might be a reminder, perhaps intended to, to remind us of John 15, where Jesus told his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. And they do what he says. They follow his word. They obey him. And then they have this huge catch, and he's sending them into the world. I want you to tell people about me. I want you to make disciples. I want you to help other people follow me. Remember, apart from me, you can do nothing. And while this, with this catch, bringing all these in, John, who's writing this gospel and who calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we all can call ourselves the disciple whom Jesus loved, because Jesus loves all his disciples, he realized who's speaking to them. It's the Lord, he yelled. And then Peter had stripped off his outer garments it's unclear whether he just has his undergarments on or he's completely naked, whatever he's doing in the boat. But he's working, um, and he's like, once he realizes Jesus, he grabs his outer garments. I don't know if he, like, shuffles it on himself, jumps in the boat. All the guy, other guys are like, uh, Peter, we got this huge catch of fish we're dealing with. Peter goes off swimming. Uh, it's 100 yards um, to shore, we're told. And he swims to shore. And when the other disciples finally catch up, they find Jesus has built this charcoal fire with a few fish already cooking. And he says, bring some of the fish you caught. 
bring them to the fire, and we're going to cook these, and we're going to eat them. And it seems they get a little too excited about the huge catch of fish. They have like an exact number. It's like they, these guys are fishermen. People have gone into all kinds of, what's the symbolism behind 153? I think they're just fishermen, and they're like, oh my gosh, this might be the biggest catch we've already ever gotten. Hey, guys, we gotta, we got to count these up. And they're sitting over counting, and then we're told, Jesus says, come and eat breakfast. <laughs> like he has to call them back from, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, maybe that's not how it went. You find it difficult to believe, like, the risen Lord of the universe is there, and they're worried about the fish, but we get worried about odd things too, even though we have Jesus um, to, that we can meet with. And then it says, they sat around this fire, eating fish and bread for breakfast, and they all knew it was Jesus, but they didn't ask him to confirm it. They just knew. And remember how we saw last week that when Jesus showed up, he had features that were the same, like you could touch the, the scars in his hand from the, where the nails held him on the cross, you could touch the scar um, from where he got stabbed with the spear to make sure he was dead. And yet, there was times when they didn't, people didn't recognize him. It's like he had all those features, and yet in this new resurrection body, he was sometimes not recognized. But they did recognize him. Uh, they did know it was him, and yet, you know, you know, it's kind of weird. It's like if Laurel and I are sitting together, it's not like, well, I knew it was Laurel. I was pretty sure, but I didn't dare to ask. It's like, I know it's Laurel, but, you know, for them, it's like, I'm I, like, know this is Jesus, but why would you have to ask? Like, are you Jesus? Like, I wouldn't have to ask it. Are you Laurel? Like, they, there's something just different that's not, but they know that it's him. And what you think that Jesus, I think this is interesting, the re- Jesus, the resurrected Lord of the universe, don't you think he had more important things to do than make a fire and clean some fish and cook some fish and cook breakfast for these guys and eat it with them? I mean, he just defeated sin and Satan and death. He just died and came back to life. And now he's making breakfast and sitting around a fire. And I think this is a picture of Jesus' patience. And he's unhurried with them. It's like, come on, guys. Like, you all, you all deserve me. He's already appeared to them a couple times. But he's like, I'm going to make breakfast for you. It's like, don't you need to rule the universe or something? Don't you need to be you know, doing you know, something crazy out there that doesn't deal with you know, cooking our fish and eating it and wiping the weird fish oil off your mouth and all that stuff? And so, just a couple, two questions. Do you ever think that Jesus has more important things to do than care about you? Do you ever think that Jesus doesn't have time for you? And this scene shows Jesus' continual care and his desire to be with his disciples, both then, his disciples then, and his disciples now. Everyone of us who calls ourselves a disciple of Jesus. It shows us that Jesus wants to have a relationship with us. We talked about connection and commitment. It's not just, you know, we can only have, we can have connection with Jesus because he's not like, I have more important things to do than you. I need to get on with other things. It's like, no, his important thing to do is us, is to work in us and to be with us, connected with us, and to grow us into everything we're supposed to be. He wants to know us. And he wants us to know him in an unhurried way. And this scene also prepares us for what happens next. And the elephant in the room is the fact that Peter denied Jesus three times. That's the elephant in the room. And, and G, what makes this really sad is that just hours before denying that he knows Jesus, Peter said, I'll follow you anywhere, even to death. I will lay down my life for you. And all it took was the question of a little slave girl. I mean, I guess I don't know how little she was. She's probably, you know, in her teens or something. A slave girl, we're told, is the first person to ask him, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? All it took was a question from a, a girl. Um, who doesn't even have her full freedom. And he says, no, I, no, I'm not one of his disciples. That's all it took to scare him away, even after he says, I would lay down my life for you. But do you remember, that was the first denial. Do you remember 
Anybody remember where the next two denials took place? Fire. Fire. Around a charcoal fire. When the next two people asked Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter was standing by a charcoal fire. And the soldiers and the servants who had arrested Jesus in the garden uh, started a charcoal fire in the courtyard in the former high priest by his house because they were warming themselves. And Peter came and joined them. And now what has Jesus done? He's built a charcoal fire. Only two times in the Bible, in the New Testament, that word's used. It's here and when Peter denied Jesus two times. And Jesus has built a charcoal fire and invited Peter and the other disciples to sit around it. As they sit around eating breakfast, I can imagine Peter, we all know it, getting those, the weird, tight stomach of like, what's going to happen next, you know? Uh, I'm sitting around the fire. You know, the other times he appeared to us, he was saying other stuff, but now we're just sitting eating breakfast, charcoal fire. Last time I sat by one of these, I denied knowing him two times. Now I'm sitting in front of the guy I denied, in front of a charcoal fire once again, in the nervousness. And what was Jesus going to say? What was Jesus going to do? And now sitting, Jesus, uh, Peter had denied Jesus three times, and now sitting around a charcoal fire, Jesus asked Peter three times to recommit. He asked him three times to reaffirm his love for Jesus. But he doesn't only ask him to recommit, he also recommissions Peter. Peter. Jesus has a mission for Peter. and There's been a break in the relationship, and that needs to be mended. But for the relationship to be fully mended, there's also, okay, let's, let's work together again. Let's keep going on this thing together again. And so that the big idea, Jesus restores us through recommitment, and recommissioning, it takes both. Restoration of a relationship with Jesus, a full, restored a relationship that's everything it should be. You know, like you're restoring a house. It's like a house isn't fully restored until you get everything restored, right? And so a res- restoration with Jesus and relationship with him, it's, there's things missing if it's only like, yes, I do love you. And if we don't get sent back out on mission, if he doesn't recommission us. So let's read what Jesus does starting in verse 15. Let's go bit by bit here. So 21, chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the first question is, do you love me more than these? And so what is Jesus making a comparison between? What is he comparing Peter's love to? Is Jesus asking if Peter loves him more than Peter loves these other disciples? Um, that's unlikely. Is Jesus asking if Peter loves him more than these fish? You know, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these fish? Which is like, why does he have a... But it would be sort of like his career. Like, this is what I did my whole life. Do you love me more than doing this fishing thing? You know, he's gone back, Sea of Galilee, his home. He's fishing. Jesus, you spent three years with me, Peter. What are you doing back fishing? Do you love me more than these? Um, that's possible. Um, what's most likely is that Jesus is asking, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And that might sound strange that Jesus would like compare the love of two different disciples. Um, but it makes sense if we remember that when Jesus said he would be betrayed, the follower is going. Peter's the one who speaks to him and says, I'll lay down my life for you. And so he makes this bold declaration. He's like, I, well, I don't know what these guys are going to do, but I'll lay down my life for you. You may say they'll desert me and they can't follow you, but I'll lay down my life for you. And Peter so confidently pledged his love for Jesus before. And then hours later, denied even knowing Jesus now Jesus is asking him to make that confident pledge again. And Peter answers in verse 15, uh, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And he, Jesus, said to him, feed my lambs. And our big idea that Jesus restores us through recommitment to recommissioning. And Jesus' commitment to Peter hasn't diminished. Jesus' love for Peter has not diminished. Peter denied Jesus, but Jesus still came to Peter. Jesus' love doesn't mean he's just going to ignore what Peter did. His love and his commitment hasn't diminished. And love doesn't mean, you know, we just ignore people's wrongs. His love isn't diminished, yet he's not going to ignore what Peter did. Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. He had three opportunities to prove his love, three opportunities to lay down his life for Jesus. And instead, Peter said, no, I'm not one of his disciples. And, and the good news is that Jesus died for deniers. We talked about that when we were going through John 18 and 19. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He knew, knows that his sheep will go astray. He lays down his life for them. Jesus is the good friend who lays down his life for his friends. Even if his friends won't lay down his life for him, he lays down his life for his friends. Jesus is always faithful. Jesus doesn't break promises or commitments. But that doesn't mean when we fail to keep our commitments that restoration isn't necessary. It doesn't mean that something doesn't need to happen. When we, feel, when we fail, we feel guilt and shame. We feel we've let him down. And, and Peter certainly felt that. In Luke's gospel, we're told after he denies him a third time, he goes out and weeps. And so he's in this place. He's like, I failed. I failed. I failed him. I didn't stay faithful like he asked me to. Peter knows he let Jesus down. And from Jesus' side of things, he isn't saying, Peter, you failed. Now you have to convince me that you love me again. You have to convince me to forgive you. You have to convince me to be committed to you. Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus has already proven that no one deserves those things. And Peter, so Peter doesn't have to prove that he deserves those things. But Jesus wants to restore Peter. And so he calls him to a charcoal fire, like the one where he denied him, looking at those same flames and smelling those same smells. He asks him to recommit. The restoration isn't complete until we're recommissioned. And every failure we have with Jesus, in our following of Jesus, is a failure of mission. It's a failure to live out our purpose. And, you know, we can think of mission as just like, oh, our mission is just to tell people about Jesus. But mission is, um, Jesus is saying, I'm sending you into this world as the Father sent me. That's our mission, is to be sent as Jesus was sent. And when we fail Jesus, it's a failure to live out our purpose, our calling, the mission that Jesus has given to us. And so forgiveness is only part of a fully restored relationship with God. We're also sent to do his work. Um, even the work that we failed to do, even work he knows that will fail to meet. Jesus knew Peter was going to fail. He told him, I know you're going to fail. Um, then he comes back to him, and even though Peter um, is so confident, Jesus still comes back. In verse 16, Jesus asks, asks again. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. In verse 17, he asks yet again, said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now here we see a change in Peter. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And it's interesting that each time Peter says to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know the answer already. Peter assumes Jesus is asking a question to which Jesus already knows the answer. And this last question by Jesus grieves Peter because Jesus asks so many times. Peter responds, you know everything, Lord. Jesus, Peter knows Jesus is my Lord. He's my God. You know everything. You know I love you. You know my heart. But, he, but based on his actions, it's like, yeah, but Peter, your actions didn't line up here. Peter loves Jesus, and Jesus knows Peter loves him. And Peter knows that Jesus knows that he loves him. 
And yet Peter denied him three times. So how can he say, you know I love you, Jesus. Peter's actions didn't show it. And this conversation with Peter shows us that while Jesus' commitment to us is secure, our commitment matures and grows over time. And Jesus knows that. And the Bible often calls our relationship with Jesus um, and with God and then with, with Christ uh, as a marriage, which is helpful because when Katie and I got married, we spoke these vows of commitment to one another. I'm never going to leave you, never going to you, forsake you. I'm never going to break these vows. We are always going to be together. And even while that is true, there are days when the way I treat Katie looks nothing like those vows I made to her. And so if I gone back on my commitment to her in the long term, no, but in that moment or on that day, my short-term actions did not line up with my long-term vows to her that I never intend to break. And even though that long-term commitment is not in question, if I don't seek her forgiveness if in the way I wronged her, there's going to be connection broken with us. Restoration needs to take place. Katie wouldn't say to me, oh, it doesn't matter that you hurt me today because you made that long-term commitment to me so many years ago um, that you, so you don't have to apologize or anything. I know you're committed to me. We, you know, we did it uh, way back when. And that's how relationships break down and fail. One is just like, well, we committed to each other and you take each other for granted. And even in our relationship with Jesus, the good news is that his long-term commitment to us and his daily actions are always in sync. His long-term commitment and his short-term, you know, daily, moment-by-moment -moment actions to us are always in sync. Jesus never fluctuates. He's 100% loving 100% of the time, even though 100% of the time we don't deserve him to be loving. But it's also good news that Jesus doesn't question our long-term commitment when we have short-term failures. That doesn't mean he ignores those failures. He wants us to experience restoration through recommitment and recommissioning. doesn't mean that we say like, oh, I was baptized 10 years ago. I was baptized 20 years ago. I, I trusted in Jesus. You know, I told my whole congregation about it. And so now I'm good. I just don't have to do anything. No, if it, you know, that's like the recipe for divorce. You know, in a, in, a, in a marriage relationship between two people, it's like, I, I did it years ago. There was a ceremony. Get over it. I don't need to you know, worry about this relationship. No, we have this daily thing that we do um, connecting with Jesus. And, it, and it's pretty amazing that even though Peter fails so big, Jesus gives him such a big job. Peter's the first leader of the church. Go read in Acts, beginning of Acts. He's the one who steps up and he's the one who, who gets everyone together. And he's the one that Pe we see Jesus here commissioning him. Um, I want you to feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. I want you to take care of the, the people um, when, I, when I leave. And Jesus extends that same amazing grace to us because grace doesn't only mean we get undeserved forgiveness when we fail. Grace means we get undeserved responsibility, even though we failed and probably will again. Jesus gives us a job to do that he knows we're not going to do a great job at most of the time. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells Peter just how much Peter will prove his love. Verses 18 and 19, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young and used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And stretching out your hands was a common way in those days to refer to crucifixion. You stretched out your hands to be nailed to the cross. Peter said he would lay down his life for Jesus. And Jesus is telling him, you're going to have your chance. But this doesn't sit well with Peter, and let's see why in verses 20 through 23. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Peter loves Jesus. Peter wants to lay down his life for Jesus. And Peter even says, he, he says, yes, I do love you more than these other disciples love you. And so why does Peter have a problem with dying for Jesus in these verses? As he and Jesus walk, Peter looks back and he sees one of the other disciples and he says, what about him? I'm going to die for you. What about him? Is he going to die for you too? Is John going to die for you too? Is he going to have, his hard, have it as hard as I am? And Jesus' answer is, if I want him to live until I return, what's that to you? You follow me. Jesus told him in verse 19, follow me. And now he returns to it again. And one of the enemies of joy in our discipleship under Jesus, our following of Jesus, is comparing to others. And how many of our feelings of failure in following Jesus would be relieved if instead of comparing ourselves to others, instead we were just focused on Jesus? Like, follow me, Peter. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about what I want for his life. Don't worry about the, the gifts I've given him. Don't worry about the talents I've given him. Don't worry about the amount of you know, fame he's gotten, the areas he's gotten to go to spread the gospel. If I've called you to disciple your however many kids in your house and you're going to make disciples of them, you're going to go to work and be a faithful father and a faithful servant in the church, and you, know, you don't have to be Billy Graham, Peter. Like You follow me. This is what you're supposed to do. When we compare ourselves, we either feel better about ourselves because we're doing better than the person next to us, or we feel worse about ourselves because we aren't doing as well as them. We might look at someone say, at their life and say, well, it's not fair. Look at what, they, what it's been like for them to follow Jesus. They've gotten everything they've wanted. They've gotten all this stuff that they've wanted. It's not fair. God has blessed them more. God has given them more gifts and talents than me. God has given them an easier life. And Jesus says, what is that to you, Peter? What is that to you, each one of us, by name? You follow me. That's what the calling is, not to be in comparison to how they're following me. What if our eyes were on Jesus and what he thinks of us, what, uh, what he wants us to do rather than other places? And then John ends this gospel in verse 24 saying, This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, this, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John is testifying about Jesus, and it's funny that he clears up this little misunderstanding uh, from how people have misunderstood verse 23. Apparently, before John even wrote this down, people were saying, Jesus said John's going to live forever. He's never going to die. And then he's like, ah, no, 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 get it, get it right. He said, if I desire that he remain until I return, um, what's that to you? Uh, so it's just kind of funny that he's like, I need to correct this. People think I'm never going to die, but I'm going to, probably, unless Jesus returns. Um, and then John admits the impossibility of his task. Write, write down a story of Jesus' life. Well, he says, if I wrote it all down, the world couldn't even contain the books that would be written. But he said in chapter 20, I've selected these parts so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you may have life in his name. So I just want to think, let's just throw, I was planning on writing it down, but I think it'll be quicker if we just um, maybe say them. What are some reasons when we fail, 
God, or we feel like we failed God, or we failed Jesus, what are some reasons we don't go to him? What do we expect him to do um, that keep us from going to him? Disappointment. Disappointment. <clears throat> Wrath. Wrath. Anger. Fear of disapproval. Fear of disapproval. Demanding. Demanding. They ask us to do more. Mm -hmm. Anger, wrath, disapproval, demanding. Any other reasons that would keep us from going to God when we fail? Forget our identity. Like we forget we're his kids. <clears throat> the, yeah, so the, like we are like, oh. Sorry, I thought you were, I thought there was an ellipsis there. So I was waiting, but uh, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, we don't, we're like, oh, what's he going to, there's maybe the relationship's in jeopardy or something like right. that. Like, I forget that, oh, he calls me his child, yeah. and that doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we forget what he said to us. And this passage um, is good news for me because I need to remind it that uh, Jesus is way more committed to me than I am to him. And I struggle like, with feeling like a failure. I've never done enough, and what I've done isn't good enough. And here Jesus reminds me that anything uh, he gives me is the opposite of what I deserve. He gives us the opposite. It's full of grace and truth. And even when I haven't done well or haven't done it well enough, I can still hear, well done, good, faithful servant from him because he knows that I'm in a lifetime of growing towards where he wants me to be. Even when I completely fail to do what he's asked me, his commitment to me doesn't waver. And even as I grow and mature in my commitment to him and love for him, his love for me is as strong as ever because it isn't based on my performance. And so... I, Take a moment um, and think to yourselves, um, what's a way that you feel that you failed Jesus? You know, maybe write it down or just in your head. What's a way that you failed Jesus? What's a responsibility that God has given you that you're failing at or have failed at? Now, whatever that is, we're going to go through four stages towards restoration, and we can get hung up on any of them. And so think, which one of these is where I'm at with God in that failure? And so the first is recognizing I failed, just owning I sinned here. Like, I failed you, Jesus. And we don't see that Peter saying that here. Jesus doesn't address it like, hey, Peter, you really blew it big time. Um, do you realize that? Uh, he doesn't say that to him because Peter already knows it. When, when Jesus is confronting people who think they're, they've got it all together and they don't have any sin or any failures, he's trying to convince them, hey guys, you're not as good as you think you are. Um, and so the first, you know, one thing that holds us up at this stage of feeling self-righteous um, is saying, well, my sin isn't that bad. My failures aren't a big deal. Um, and so are you hung up at that stage where you're like, I have things that I'm not completing or doing that God wants me to do, but yeah, it's not really that bad. Is that where you're hung up? Um, if you're hung up there, you can't get to full restoration. Second uh, is receiving forgiveness. So it's um, owning our sin, owning our failure, receiving forgiveness, coming to Jesus 
and saying, I know you died for this. You know, I messed up here. Um, I, I know you love me. I know your mercy's for me. Uh, I want to receive forgiveness. And then you know, uh, actually receiving and walking away knowing we're forgiven. Because the first stage we get hung up is, you know, my sin isn't really that bad. That keeps us from going to God and getting forgiveness. At this stage, we can believe, well, God isn't really that good. Um, he's not going to give out this thing to me. Um, and we, when we do this, we're really calling God a liar. We're saying, I know you say you're good and loving and gracious and merciful, but I just don't believe you. Um, I've come and asked for forgiveness, and I just don't feel forgiven. I don't believe that you could ever treat me that way. We're telling God he's a liar. And then thirdly, uh, we have, uh, well, maybe there's only, I might have miscounted here. Um, three stages. We're going to put like this recommitment, recommissioning. It's kind of one stage a bit. But G Peter knows he's done wrong. He weeps about it. He's grieving over his sin. He's grieving over his failure. And when Jesus comes to him, Jesus doesn't rub his nose in it because he knows you're feeling bad enough, Peter. But he calls him to his, Peter, do you love me? Um, and so it's, we recommit to Jesus. It's like, I failed you. You know, you know in, a, in a relationship, we maybe say something, you know, I'm sorry committed to you, I still want to be with you, like maybe those are things I say, we say to our spouses, like, you know, I know I hurt you, I still love you, and I want to be with you, and that's our recommitment, Jesus calls us to recommit, so we recommit to him, um, but then we also get recommissioned, um, and something that can, so I guess it's four, four stages, but there's three hang-ups, we get hung up on not being recommissioned to do his work, when we believe that God just exists to forgive us, um, that we just... You know, we just mess up, and God's there to forgive us. That's, like, that's what that relationship is about. I fail, God forgives, you know, we just move on. I just keep going to him every time I need forgiveness, and that's you know, what it's about. But full restoration can't stop at forgiveness. It moves beyond forgiveness to mission. And it isn't much of a relationship to only interact with something, someone when they've done something wrong. I mean, imagine that my relationship with Hudson, the only time we interact is when he's like, Dad, I messed up with the lawn again. Okay, I forgive you. And that's just the only time that that's the furthest our relationship goes. Is he just comes to me when he's done something wrong um, and needs forgiveness. But it's the recommissioning is actually we get to work with Jesus. We get to be on his mission with him, living for his purpose with him, doing the work that he wants us to do with him. And so it's, you know, Jesus, I know you. this is what you call me to do. And I failed at that. And I, I love you. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. Um, would you walk with me? Would you help me? Would you empower me to go and do this? To go and uh, well, the three things we talked about. Would you help me to pray? Would you help me to tell others about you? Would you help me to love other people as you've loved me? And he commissions us out for his purpose on that. And we're not uh, fully restored until we're actually working with Jesus instead of just seeking his forgiveness. So just as we close, what if we're just I'm going to pose this one question as we close. What if we were a community of people who responded to one, another, one another's failures this way? And that's one of the missions Jesus sends us on. He sends us to help one another walk with Jesus. And so as we fail each other, and as we see other people fail one another or fail at things, what if we responded to one another's failures in the same way Jesus does, with the same grace and mercy and truth? And so often we settle for something less than full restoration. So often we settle for, some, for ignoring one another's sins and failures. We settle for avoiding it. And we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want people to feel bad. We don't want to be scared of how another person reacts. Um, Jesus doesn't brush it under the rug. Um, and he doesn't. And sometimes uh, maybe we think 
that Jesus is just going to be like, I'm done with you. Um, but it, we see in this that he, Peter fails in the biggest way, and he's not done with them, and he's not done with us. And one of the ways that the church, we're told in John 17, Jesus' prayer for us, I pray that you, they would be one, that my people would be one, my disciples would be one, that, and that's how the world will know that the Father sent him, and that we're loved um, with that same love. It's because uh, we don't say, I've had enough of you, I'm giving up on you, like I'm done with you, you failed. And we don't say it, we just hold together. And Jesus has put his spirit in us so we can continue his work of restoration um, with him in one another. And Jesus has commissioned each of us to be instruments of his restoration um, in one another's lives. And so uh, that would be amazing if we showed Jesus' love um, as he restores, as we work with one another, as we fail each other, and as we fail um, and sin and against each other and sin you know, in all sorts of ways, as we restored each other, um, just like Jesus restored Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that is good news for each of us because none of us follows you perfectly. None of us has given our life perfectly to Jesus. None of us has, uh, on a daily, moment-by-moment basis, uh, surrendered 100% of the time, even though we have said, Jesus, I surrender to you. I want to follow you. I love you. So would you let us live with the grace and the mercy that you extend to us as we grow in our relationship with you, as we walk with you, would you use us uh, as we experience that from you, that we would give that to one another as well. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.